Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our webcast. This is the results for the first half of 2023. And of course, as you can see on the slide, I'm here with Bart Ormsbear, CFO, Mark Lavella, COO, and Tim Prestridge, our Group Business Development Director. Just to remember what we do. What we do is we do a bind build in the scientific instruments market. And we believe there's really three reasons why it's a good idea to do that. And we call them the three pillars of shareholder value uh, judges. One is long-term drivers. And what are they? Well, the long-term drivers are long-term and fast growth in university education throughout the world. And we believe that even in developed countries like the UK, there's growth in university education. And just to give an idea of the scale of this, the number of first-year students in the UK doubled between 2000-2019. So imagine what's happening in China, in Indonesia, in Africa, and South America. So this is there for the long term. Uh, the other long-term driver is a desire of everybody in the world to improve what they're doing. We all try to optimize. And of course, if you want to optimize something physical, you have to measure uh, what you're trying to optimize. You can't optimize something you haven't measured. And uh, we make the instrument to measure these things. So we, we, we do believe that these drivers are very long-term and are there to stay. The next thing, or we'll start with the third one, if you do a buy and build, you must have deals to do. And when we started Judges in its present form 18 years ago, we checked that we'd find other deals. And we found that there were 2,000 companies just in the UK uh, doing what we do. And we felt that was a good pool of potential deals. And we believe that out of these 2,000, there's probably 100 companies which need to change hands every year. And of course, we've done 22 acquisitions during that period, so we just need really the one. And also, we're not restricting ourselves to the UK. The third one is maybe a little bit less obvious, is low capital use. Why is that important? Because your typical buy and build exercise works like this. I'm on a multiple of 20 times. You're on a multiple of 10 times, I buy you and I've doubled my money. Uh, and this is a very legitimate, and it's the traditional buy and build model. Our buy and build model is different. Uh, we buy company for say five times, so we make 20% on our money. And uh, we, we pay, in, in the past, we've paid more like three, 4%. Now we have to pay 8%, but it's a much better arbitrage. But of course, it, what I've said is I'm talking about multiple of EBIT. But EBIT, which is earnings, it doesn't help you to repay the bank. What helps you to repay the bank is cash. So it only works, that model, if you have good cash conversion. And this comes from having very low capital use. And we, that's what we have. As 
Brad will explain, he will show you some figures about this. So this is the strategic basis for judges and why it creates shareholder value. And I would say that shareholder value is our obsession. We we think that that's what we're paid to produce. Although, you know, we're very good citizens and uh, I think we behave well, but our purpose in life is to create shareholder value. How do you execute that strategy? Well, you have to be a disciplined acquirer by earning sustainable businesses, producing sustainable profit and cash flow and pay sensible prices. You have to have also a good reputation as an acquirer. So people desire to sell you their company when they retire. And then once you bought these companies, you have to make sure they have organic growth and they're doing well in your ownership. And our model is to leave these companies a lot of autonomy. And this is how we think we optimize the performance. But we'll talk a lot about this a bit later. So what are acquisition criteria? Well, you know, we like strong exporters because we try to buy companies which are in world niches and ideally which dominate a world niche. So, of course, the UK is not a huge country. So most of your sales must be abroad. They need to generate sustainable earnings and cash flow. And we've been paying three to seven times EBIT for these companies. And to be a bit more precise, the three was not one out because it was in 2009 when everything was cheap. And the seven is also not one out because we bought Geotech and we paid a higher multiple than usual uh, because it was a large company last year. But really, it's usually four to six times. And on average, we've actually, excluding Geotech, we paid five times. And we're allowed to borrow up to three times EBITDA. And we've paid a stock between three and eight percent on our debt. And Geotech, of course, was a large deal. And we managed to freeze our interest rate at five percent just after executing this deal. So these have a long incubation period. Crystallization is erratic. You have to pursue a lot of deals before you manage to close them. You have to offer a lot of financial certainty for the seller and behave in an honorable way so that they feel safe that once they've shaken your hand, they know exactly the deal which uh, that, that you will do. And then once we bought the company, we have to reduce debt and reinvest the money in future acquisition. So this gives you an idea of the acquisition we've done. Some years you'll see don't appear, and some years appear many times, like 2016. So I was talking about erratic, and there you got erratic. And they're all of very different size, but we love them all. Post-acquisition, so we need very good financial controls. These companies are often family-owned and they're very rich because they've been successful for many years. And they have cash in the bank and they have everything in their heads. So we need to really teach these companies to work with figures and facts which I understand well because they're usually very erudite engineers or scientists and they understand figures. We leave them a, you know, a great degree of autonomy. We encourage them to seek always excellence and to fight mediocrity and also to focus on the long term because, of course, we buy these companies for the long term. In fact, we've never sold any. The key messages of the first half of this year 
we've kept following our strategy as we always do. And we think this strategy is still very good, as good as on the first day we started. We've had solid organic growth and also acquisition growth, predominantly actually from Geotech, which we only own one month the previous year. And this was good growth in most regions. We did two small deals, which did a very limited contribution to the half year. We've increased the dividend 23%, the interim dividend. And we have this policy, which is quite public, that we will increase the dividend by at least 10% every year. And we've had we've implemented that policy every year in the last 18 years. But in fact, we've uh, paid a compound 23% increase in dividend. And we've segmented the management team at the beginning of the year with Tim Prestridge that you will meet later. The business environment is still unpredictable, although it's much better than been in the past three years. We had recently a lot of problems with supply chain, but these are starting to alleviate. Geopolitical concerns remain high in our mind, and in our mind, that's the main risk which is suffered by the business. And then the timing of the geotech coring expeditions, which is a third of the geotech business, and geotech business is a third of the total business. So this is typically a one-year event and not necessarily a yearly event. And when it happens in the year, is depending very much on third parties rather than us. So we have to be a bit passive in that matter. And what we've explained in our chairman's statement is that in 2024, we are anticipating that the coring would take place towards the end of the year, probably November. And as a result of this, you know, any time switching could have a sizable impact on the recognition of the revenue for that campaign. The outlook... Well, we started the second half of the year with a robust order book, as high as it's ever been in June. We're expecting a strong second half, making more money than the first half because we have a coring expedition in that period. So that's a good period. And we're confident of meeting the expectation of the market for the full year. And now we're going to look at a little bit of our performance. And I pass on to Brad, our finance director. Thanks very much, David. Good afternoon, everyone. Talking through the highlights from the last six months and overall had a pretty decent set of results in the first half. Although, as you'll see a little later in the presentation, not all of our businesses performed quite as well as we'd hope. So what's happened in the period? Well, total revenue up 32% to 61 million. And that really is a combination of 16.5% organic revenue growth coupled with a full first half contribution from our May 22 acquisition of Geotech. So the good organic revenue growth was supported by good organic order intake, itself up 14% on the comparative period. And that's helped support the revenue growth together with two other things. One, we entered the period with a really strong order book, and that's been maintained throughout the first half. And also, pleased to say, um, we certainly noticed an alleviation in the global supply chain issues that were causing us some, some angst last year, although it is also still fair to say that these issues haven't fully receded. As usual with judges, when we have good organic revenue growth, we tend to have good profit growth, and 
Adjusted operating profits are up 41% in the first half to 14.2 million, up from 10.1 million in H122. And adjusted earnings per share is also up 23% to a record 152.8 pence per share. Noting here that the EPS growth is a little subdued compared to the operating profit growth. And that really is a factor of, of two things, really. One is the increase in the UK's headline corporation tax rate and also higher interest. So moving from generating profit to generating cash, we generated more than 11 million cash from operations in the period at a cash conversion of 81%. We've been able to complete two acquisitions in the period and also supported from that cash generation to be able to also enter into two acquisitions during the period and further also we've settled the full geotech earnout, 50% in shares, 50% in cash. So we finished the period with net debt of 50 million down from 52 million at the start of the period with a gearing of 1.45. So it means that we have plenty of headroom on our covenants, a continued strong balance sheet position, and really in a position where we can support you know, the strategy of the group, which is the buy and build. So we've done two acquisitions in the period. And of course, also providing shareholders with progressively increasing dividend returns. And we've increased the interim dividend to 27 pence per share. That's an increase of 23%. So all in all, you know, we have a strong balance sheet position. We have good cash flow in good position to be able to face challenges ahead. And, you know, if you look forward to the rest of the year, we know there are still some out there. Well, they will clearly geopolitical situation at the moment remains, you know, a concern to us and, you know, never far from the front pages of the news. But at the same time, improvements in supply chain, although not fully, fully resolved. And, you know, if you look for the knock on for some of those things, you know, the increased inflation and the increased interest rates still at a higher level than I think we'd probably like. But, you know, standing back from that, we've had good order intake. We have a really, really strong order book we're expecting a strong h2 and hence why you know we, we've stated to the market this morning that we're confident in meeting market expectations so moving on to the next slide on performance talked a lot about the performance already so just stop on two points one just want to touch on tax and our effective tax rate on adjusted earnings is now up to 22 percent and moving upwards and that really is a consequence as i mentioned before of the increased UK headline corporation tax rate, which has gone up to 25%, and also us now being a large company for the purposes of the UK's R&D tax credit scheme. The second thing is we do have adjusting items that take us to our statutory result, and you know they're reasonably big in this period for a couple of reasons. One, we have non-cash amortisation of the intangible assets that we're required to recognise when we acquire businesses. And secondly, as a very big one-off this year, a £5.5 million charge, which relates to the difference between the market value of the shares we issued to satisfy the element of the Geotech earnout that was payable in shares, and the difference between that market value and the price we'd agreed at the date of the acquisition for issuing the shares. Now, under IFRS, we're not allowed to adjust the total acquisition consideration, so the consequence is we've had to put it through the P&L as a charge. And talking about order intake, as I always do, you know, it's the bellwether of our business. So as always, I'll talk through the graph first. And on that usual standard graph, we have a three lines, red line, 
a black line and a green line. Red line is our internal sales budget. We set that once a year as part of our budgeting process towards the end of the year. And that line doesn't move unless we make a substantial acquisition. And the end of the red line and the far end of the graph is the end of June 2023. So measuring against our target, the red line, we have the black line, which is our trailing 12 months of orders, the last 12 months of history, and also the green line, which is the last four months of orders annualized. Now, in this period, we've also added a few more lines because of this, the substantial acquisition of Geotech last year. So we wanted to show both the organic position and the total group. So what can you see on the graph? Well, if you look at the black line, the black line is almost touching the red line, which means that for the last 12 months, we've had orders that are really close to this year's sales budget. And if you look at the organic part of that, you can see that the organic trading 12 months is actually slightly ahead of the organic sales budget. So a good picture, which illustrates why you can see the 14% organic order intake increase during the period, why we ended up with 22 weeks of orders at the end of the period. And then since the end of June through to the end of August, we're still 13% up on our organics. And the organic order book is still 21 weeks. So this, alongside satisfactory inorganic order intake as well, shows and illustrates why we're you know, comfortable in saying we're confident of meeting market expectations for the full year. You know, a profit bridge to help everyone understand a little bit about the evolution of our profit during the period. And what this slide's reconciling is the H122 contribution of the business compared with the H123 contribution of the business. And this is before central costs. They're the two big blocks at either end of the slide. So the first block reconciling is you know, we've had big organic growth from a number of our businesses. And at the same time, some of our businesses have gone backwards and you see that red block in the middle, about half the size of the growth. So overall, still good organic growth. I certainly personally would like to see that a little bit smaller, but overall still a good picture. And then the third block is the full first half effect and compared to last year of our acquisition of Geotech and also a modest contribution from the two acquisitions during the period. Briefly touch on balance sheet and cash flows. And you know, we ended the period with 50 million net debt compared with the 52 million net debt at the start of the period. We've made two acquisitions in the period of Henniker and Bossanova, and David will talk about those a little bit later. But I also want to touch on another reason why our debt's not quite as low as we hoped, and that's because we've had working capital outflows as well, and particularly in inventory, where we've continued to have two reasons really. One, a big chunk of supply chain conservatism, that's making sure we've got you know, sufficient stock to ensure we can build our instruments and satisfy and delight our customers by getting them there on time. Um, but as I mentioned before, supply chain issues are not fully over. So we've also got quite a bit of almost completed work in progress or instruments that are nearly done but missing one or two components and we have a reasonably high level of those as we're still waiting for some things to come in so those two things together have meant working capital has increased and um, consequently we've not generated quite as much cash as we would have liked and i think just the key thing to reflect on is that historically before we went into the pandemic we were looking at working capital on average which is around 10 percent of our annual revenue and it's moved closer to 20% at the end of this period. And it's certainly an important factor for us. David talked about this earlier when we were talking about the business model, the importance of turning profit into cash. And whilst we've got 
know, cash conversion of 81%, it's reasonable that it's not as good as we like, which we'd expect to be 90 plus percent. So, you know, ongoing focus going forwards to help us reduce that 20% of annual revenue closer back towards 10%, but it's not something which you can just click your fingers and restore overnight. And another key measure for us, we turn on total invested capital, erotic. And just a reminder for everyone, you know, it really is a function of the multiples we pay for the businesses we acquire. So we start on the left-hand side of this graph with FTT, where we pay close to five times and therefore start just over 20%. And improving ROTIC really requires either improved financial performance or buying businesses at lower multiples or both. And if you look across the graph, you can see a couple of big cliff edges in the middle of the graph when we acquired GDS and Scientifica in 2012 and 2013. Respectively, they were big acquisitions for us back then. And then also at the far end of the graph, the similar sort of cliff edge where we acquired Geotech. And smaller acquisitions really minimally affect Rotic now. And what happened in the period? Well, we started at 21.3%. We finished at the end of June at 22.8%. So, you know, we continue to strive to improve. And Mark and Tim, in a little while, will take you through how we go about that in a bit more detail. On diversification, you start on the left-hand side. Now, it's important we let you know you can see from that pie chart that there's no one single company that dominates our group. Our businesses also manufacture instruments for different end markets, so we're diversified by scientific application. And as you can see for the other two charts, there is no one single country or region that overly dominates our group geographically. And you can see from the bottom that that's because we export more than 85% of our revenue and it goes across the world. So moving on to my last slide on financial history and really a summary of some key financial factors to show the success of our group over the long term. And you can see revenue, profits, earnings per share have all grown strongly over the group's history. And this period, no difference there really with record revenue, record profits, and record earnings per share. Dividends have also grown by at least 10% per annum throughout the last 15 plus years of having provided a dividend and now compound growth of the dividend is 23%, which is consistent with the increase we've made to the interim dividend this period to 27 pence per share. And we continue to focus on cash generation within the group, which really serves to help enable us to reduce our acquisition debt, make room for more acquisitions and fund that growing dividend. And on that note, I think I'll pass back to David to talk about our group's growth strategy. Thank you very much, Brad. So the next slide shows growth strategy. Of course, that's what I want to do. And the growth drivers are now on the slide. And really, our growth comes from M&A, buying businesses, and organic growth. I think we have to recognize with the time, the passage of time and growing the, the business, uh, the share of organic growth is likely to become more and more important as an element of total growth. But in the meantime, I'll comment a bit on acquisition. And we did two small acquisitions. I'm not going to talk for hours about this, but of course, open the question. We bought Henniker, which is involved in deposition. We have quite a few companies involved in deposition. And so we're interested in that. This is about plasmas and about changing the, the, the properties of surfaces. It's in Cheshire. Total price is 2 million three, including a potential half a million earnout. 
in the expectation that the company will produce 580,000 of EBIT in the current year. And we have the hope that it will. So we paid four times. The next one is Bosanova. So it's strange because it's really one of the smallest deals we ever completed and it's very far away in Los Angeles. It's a company producing $400,000 of EBIT. We paid a million six, which again four times. And the reason we bought a company which is that far is because it's very complementary with our company, Dystron. And both companies make instruments to test the properties of hair, which is very interesting for people who make shampoos and dyes and also equipment to curl the hair, for instance, curlers and all this, and dryers. The one we already had, which is Dyson, we've had for seven years, uh, is, is about the mechanical properties of hair. So is it easier to break the hair by pulling on it? And this is about the appearance. They're very good at imaging and interpreting uh, and digitalizing the image of uh, locks of hair and so that you can add, because it's all about beauty, but it's very difficult to say, how do you add beauty to beauty? But they can do that, and it's a very uh, useful for our uh, customers who are interested in making claims uh, that the product are good for people's hair. So these are two companies which are you know, very, very synergistic, and they work hand in hand. And they had a, a commercial agreement already for a year, and it's been very fruitful. But of course, we're also interested in organic growth. And I'm going to pass on to Mark and Tim to talk about organic growth, because what we do to these companies after we, uh, after we bought them is critically important. Thank you, David. And uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to really just pick a few items out of this quite comprehensive slide. And then Tim is going to come along and pick a few more out and give his angle on things. So I think the first place to start is right in the middle with our autonomous structure. So Judge's model of running the businesses is very, very specific, which is that we believe that autonomy trumps integration and cost cutting. So there are many groups around the world whose strategy is to buy businesses, to crash them all together, um, to have a central production facility, maybe a central uh, finance facility, etc., and really um, remove the autonomy of the businesses. We believe that in these small niche businesses, which are very close to their markets, there is enormous power in having a small uh, HQ, um, usually with R&D, sales, production and finance all in the same place. And that means that um, they can respond very quickly to market changes. They can tweak a product, they can produce it quite quickly and they can ship it out to the market. So the basic um, autonomy structure um, is, is based around that concept that uh, responsiveness to the market, closeness to the market is something you can really only achieve um, if you leave these businesses broadly autonomous. Um, now, as I say, the, there are many other groups that have a different view. And, um, uh, you know, if, if you're somebody that believes strongly in uh, synergy and cost cutting, then, you know, judges is frankly not the group for you. Um, we are a player that believes very, very firmly in the power of autonomy. The question then is, you know, what do we do to help these businesses when we acquire them? 
And I think this falls into really three or four areas. A lot of the businesses that we get or that we buy have been run by a founder uh, for a number of years. And usually that founder is very knowledgeable about the industry, quite often about the technology, quite often about the customers, but they're not experienced business people. So the sort of things that they have not put in place tend to be good finance structures. So monthly reporting, analysis of data to understand where they're making money and where they're not. You know, many of the smaller businesses are pretty unsophisticated when it comes to profitability. And, you know, if at the end of the year, the bank balance is in the black, they're happy. And if it's in the red, they're not. And it, it doesn't go much further than that. You know, we look at producing in the lightest possible way, some basic monthly accounts. We also require them to forecast what they're going to do next month and then deliver to that forecast. We also like them to do a little bit of analysis of what they've achieved and try and find out what went right and what went wrong and, and learn from that. In terms of the operational side of the business, my personal belief is there's a lot of assumption that every manufacturing business in the country or the world already runs pretty well. We're all used to seeing these wonderful images of uh, BMW and Mini and um, Nissan producing fantastic products quickly from these automated factories. The, the reality is that most factories in Britain and around the world from small businesses are actually operated pretty poorly. And many of them haven't even taken up some of the lean initiatives that were um, introduced in you know, late 70s, early 80s. And therefore, actually, there's some pretty low hanging fruit in many of these businesses just to get them performing better from an operational point of view. And we're very good at uh, introducing those new ideas and raising the bar in the performance side of things. And maybe the final area that I just wanted to focus on is leadership. And probably this for me is the most important side that, you know, many of the people that started these businesses are scientists and technicians. And as I say, they know the customers very well, but they're not experienced at running businesses. And pretty soon as a business starts to grow, you start struggling with hiring new people if you take an autocratic view. And therefore, somebody that can grow with the business and somebody who can hire great people and let them get on with stuff rather than seeking to micromanage them is really important. So as these businesses grow, the premium is on helping the leaders to evolve and become better leaders with less focus on their technology and more focus on building their senior teams. Um, in some cases, people are near retirement when they sell to us, and therefore that's less of an issue. But if we're looking to bring new leadership in, we would focus on the leadership aspect. And we've got some great examples where you know, someone with years of experience within an industry has left and someone with no experience in that industry has come along and doubled or quadrupled the size of the business quite quickly. So it's not industry knowledge by itself, which is necessarily the answer to improving many of these businesses. And as I say, we try and develop the leaders we can, but in some cases, it is a question of bringing in some new blood. Those are my main points. Uh, so let me pass across to Tim, and he's got a few others that he'd like to sort of highlight. Great. Thank you, Mark. So yes, I'm going to highlight a couple of things in the top two boxes there, and then spend a little bit of time talking about the bottom two boxes in particular, the one on the right around strategy and ambition. I think the first thing I'd like to do is just describe within that context of the autonomous management structure, how is it that we go about, if I pick the example of processes for governance and compliance, how is it that we go about 
making that happen and enforcing that, so to speak, when that might otherwise be seen as a difficult thing to do when you're also wanting autonomous structure. We are a listed company, so clearly, you know, we we understand there's a a, a, a legal obligation and a moral obligation um, to have a you know, fully appropriate governance, uh, audit, and compliance structure in place. Um, but I think it's fair to say that uh, a lot of the businesses that that we uh, acquire or have acquired, they're, they're smaller entrepreneurial businesses, small family-run businesses, and those types of controls might not have been put in place. They might not be front and center in, in, in the mindset. So one way of thinking about this, well, okay, there's a lot of controls that we have to try and implement here. But really the last thing we want to do is go against that sort of autonomous structure. We don't want to enforce lots of things. So for example, we don't want to have a large head office staff who are leading this governance and compliance and sort of taking responsibility for it off the operating companies. On the other hand, neither do we want to push a large amount of structure and compliance requirements into the companies that then requires them to build out uh, large teams and sort of mismatch their requirements for staff towards covering those sorts of requirements. So as an example, you know, we found that the solution here is more around really being very thoughtful and careful around how we construct appropriate, adequate processes and policies and then making sure that they are you know, written in such a way that they are straightforward to implement and that we can cascade the responsibility for implementing processes to follow those policies down through into the companies. So you know, without requiring them to build huge teams around that. So we certainly leverage across the group, across different group companies to help us to do that. But it's all about having adequate and pragmatic policies. Another example, if I go across the operational excellence square, Mark mentioned earlier the, the balance between autonomy and synergy and the way we see the autonomous model as trumping synergies every time. Maybe an example where some aspect of synergy is useful to us and it was very much a strength of the design of the group is in this sort of group-wide functional benchmarking. I like to describe the group somewhat tongue-in-cheek that the way that we work is one for all, all for one, and everyone for themselves. And you know, the, the group as a whole excels when all the individual companies in, you know, individually excel. But the benefit of, of the group structure, you know, having these independent companies that are separate, but they all have very similar, you know, very similar challenges and lots of things in common, we operate in a sort of open book way. So the strengths of, of companies can be um, can, can be discussed and described amongst the group. And we use that in a sort of benchmarking way. So for example, um, if one company is looking to hire a role that they can ask openly, you know, who's got real strength in this type of function across the group? Or if they're looking to implement, say, a new piece of software or a new control or ERP software or something, they can look to understand what's been done before across across the group and they can they can use that learning and use that information so in some sense i suppose there is a healthy internal competition but that sort of group-wide functional benchmarking um around what's what's the best in class that we have internally that is an, an aspect of of how we do sort of value synergy i'm going to turn now primarily to the strategy and ambition corner and mark and my respective roles we chair a portfolio of the operating companies. And I usually find it easy to describe 
the role in the first case by saying what it isn't. And what it isn't is Mark and I running the companies. That's absolutely not what we do. So what do we do? Well, the way that I describe the role is to say that firstly and foremostly, we want to ensure that we have absolutely the best talent in place running and leading those companies. So that sort of really highlights the idea of focusing on the senior leadership and the senior leadership team and the development programs. We also want to make sure that 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 leader, that talent leadership is building around itself the strongest possible team that it can. And that's around networking, collaboration and the succession planning element. The other things that we then look for are that that team is building um, an ambitious but rational strategy. So what I mean by ambition is that it's clearly showing um, uh, an in, an in deliberate intent to grow. So there's a desire to grow uh, well ahead of an underlying industry growth growth rate, for example, and that you know clearly demonstrates that the business is wanting to deliberately do something. It's not just going with the flow of the industry. They are planning to actually you know actually do something and, and grow the organisation. But it's rational in that you know, it's reasonable, it's sensible, and it's based on based on fact. And we also want to make sure that the team is acting on that strategy. So they're doing something about it with urgency. And so, again, it's not our role to write the strategy, but we have assisted in terms of providing a sort of structured strategy process that enables the companies to state their ambition and to identify how they want to try and achieve that ambition and what they're going to do about it. So if if uh, we were to sit in front of you today and tell you about our uh, top 100 actions for, for growing judges scientific, uh, obviously that would sound crazy. Um, but actually a real strength of our model is that when we think about across 20 companies, uh, maybe that's five key actions each, actually it's totally plausible. Uh, through this autonomous and through this devolved organization structure, we can be confident that the companies have identified uh, what what the key things are that they can do. They're, they're that granular um, and they are driving specific actions in order to uh, drive towards the, the, the ambition that, the, um, that, that they've stated that they have. Okay, I'm going to hand back to David now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark and Tim. So it's now Outlook. We're going to repeat something we said before. You know, we've been conducting our business model, which has been proving how robust it is over and over again with a strong balance sheet, good long-term fundamentals, and total focus on shareholder value. Our environment remain a bit uncertain. We have inflation, like we haven't had for many years, and high interest rates. Uh, the geopolitical environment is as volatile as I've seen my whole life. Uh, Sterling is a very competitive currency. So it's very good for us because our cost on sterling and most of our revenue isn't. And we have some positive improvement in uh, uh, in supply chain. Current trading, well, you know, we've had robust order intake and sales in, in a good order book to start the second half. We're expecting a strong second half helped by a coring expedition. And we're really confident that the uh, results for the whole year will meet market expectation. So what's the investment case? All the things we've said, we have a 
robust business model with discipline. You've got loads of targets. We only buy earnings enhancing companies. We have very good long-term drivers. We have well diversified by geography and scientific application. The management is totally obsessed with shareholder value, which is profitability, cash generation, reducing debt and growing the dividend and achieving a high return on capital. We've grown the dividend above 10% every year for the past, I think it's actually 18 years or 17 years. And the compound growth rate of uh, dividend actually since we started paying it is 23% per annum. And then for those who are not young and are uh, resident in the UK, uh, it's, the shares are free of inheritance tax after two years of holding them. So that's a very good thing. And I hope it lasts uh, quite a long time. And, and that being said, we're open for question and answers. So first question, do you have any recurring revenue? And if so, what sort of percentage? We don't have a lot of recurring revenue because we sell uh, largely, uh, we sell capital goods and uh, people don't need to buy them every year. So most of it is one-off. We have some recurring revenue uh, in in the sense that some of the instruments that we have uh, have uh, parts which need to be renewed, and uh, and of course Geotech has uh, some recurring revenue because a third of its business is services which are of a recurring nature. Uh, apart from that, but it's a it's a small minority uh, of of our business. And are the coring expeditions at Geotech of varying revenues? And if so, what would be the typical order size or the typical range of those varying revenues? And also, how does the revenue recognition for the coring work work? Okay, well, yeah, there's varying revenue, but it's uh, they're quite large. It's going to several million and. You know, typically it would be probably between three and six million. And the recognition I'm going to pass on to Brad, who is an expert in this subject. It's, it, you know, simply put, the um, revenue recognition for the coring contract is, is a slightly complex version of percentage of completion. Is there any change to the M&A environment following the increase in interest rates? Uh Yes, I, I think there should logically be, because at this point, say, we need, as I've explained, to pay 8% on our debt. And last year, we froze the Geotech deal at uh, 5%. So on an 80 million pound deal, the 3% per annum makes a big difference. So logically, it should be. I, I can't say uh, that uh, I'm seeing the effect of it. Uh, but the longer it lasts, the more it will change the environment. I'm convinced of that. Uh, but I have no experimental knowledge that anything has changed in the M&A scene. But things should get cheaper. I would say that uh, just uh, comparatively, large deals uh, are more subject to uh, higher interest rate than small deals. Small deals, say, in a nutshell, if you pay four times EBIT, 
you get 25% on your money and the interest will eat up uh, 7%, 8%, it leaves a lot. Uh, but if you pay, say, seven times, like we paid on Geotech, and you pay 8%, so you get 15, you get 8, it leaves you 7, which is a lot less. So, you know, we think that logically, uh, we should have reduced values mostly for larger deals. And do you standardize the ERP systems throughout the group? That's one for Mark and Tim. Okay, so um, the answer is no, but small manufacturing systems, there are not that many ERP systems which will run those sensibly at a sensible price. And therefore, no matter how much people look, they end up coming back to three or four systems which sort of do the job pretty well. So um, we like to, in, in many ways, we like to give the companies the illusion that they can have whatever they want in practice they always come up back to one of the uh, one of the same four systems and of course the other point is that if there are if you've got colleagues around the group who've got one of those systems it does make implementing it and writing reports for it that much simpler so there's a sort of pull rather than a pull from the companies rather than a push from us um that uh, standardized systems or, or using one of that shortlist um, ends up being just much easier for everybody. Um, in terms of our end of things, uh, we mandate a certain amount of minimum information which they have to send it to us every month. And provided they can pr provide that, um, it doesn't matter to us what ERP system they have as long as it works their business. And are there any lessons or surprises so far from the geotech deal? And has anything not gone to plan or gone better than you might have imagined? Uh, I would say, you know, like, I mean, make no mistake, whenever you buy a company, you get a lot of good and bad surprises because uh, it, it, all companies are quite complex. You know, I we we do feel that it's an excellent company. Uh, we, uh, and I can't say, you know, we've had on on the whole, the it's more or less as we expected, but we have some positive things and some negative things. But on average, we, we're really happy that it's uh, what we were thinking. And, uh, and so we'd buy it again for the same price if we could. And what's the restriction on frequency of coring expeditions? Is it demand or is it internal? Without going into enormous amounts of technical detail, um, the way that most of these coring expeditions happens requires uh, quite a lot of uh, third party involvement. And there are all sorts of people that need to come together for these projects. And for many of them, there are only one or two players in the world. Um, most of these need a ship and there are really only at the moment two ships that can do this worldwide. Um, there are other things that need to come together and you've got weather limitations that differ in different parts of the world. Um, so there are really quite a lot of. And then the other thing is that although you might expect that this is, uh, you know, this has a sort of potential future source of revenue um, would be something that's led by oil companies. Actually, most of it at the moment is led by governments and universities. And, you know, their budgets um, are 
you know, perhaps a little bit less flexible than a than a, a commercial company, and their timings are a little bit less flexible. So there's there's quite a lot of constraints on the process, and it would typically be pretty difficult. Um, you might possibly just get two in a year. Um, some years you'll get naught, but you know, David's point that on average we'll see one a year um, is sort of borne out not just by the commercial realities, but also by the availability of all these different elements that have to come together for the project. And how does the sales process work at Geotech, particularly in relation to securing new service contracts? And have you made any changes to the sales team or sales process? And the questioner goes on to ask, are you still expecting to sign a new service contract this year? And do you expect the three service contracts you've inherited to be renewed? We, we need to be slightly careful about going too far with some of these questions in terms of giving you know commercially sensitive information out. Um, what I would say is that all of the geotech business is uh, concentrated on relatively few players. Um, there are so many only so many people in the world who are interested in the services and the products that geotech produces. So it's not like we have a sales team of 100 scouring the earth for new leads that we've never come across. Um, I've been very impressed with the the intimate knowledge that uh, the small and highly focused sales team we have has of the key players in these markets around the world. Um, you know, the sales director, um, well, I'm, again, I'm not going to actually name specific uh, companies or countries, but, you know, the sales director was on three different continents in the last three weeks and talking to the key players. So we're very happy with the sales process and the knowledge and relationships we have with. I wouldn't, it's more than a handful, but it's not hundreds of, of key players. Following on, is there any change in the competitive environment? So uh, one of Geotech's great uh, attributes is that it's what you know, in the old days used to be called in, in the IT world a sort of systems integrator in that um, it, what it's really good at is bringing lots of different technologies to bear on an individual project. Uh, and therefore, they're not particularly worried about new techniques coming on board because they simply buy them in. So many of their projects involve seven or eight different scanners uh, looking at different aspects of their coring samples, um, et cetera. And therefore, um, what it means is that they're very nimble. And if a, new, uh, a sexy new technique comes along, um, they can buy those in, bolt them to their system and integrate them with the data gathering, which they do. Um, so uh, what I would say is that actually the data side of things itself has become increasingly important in that world. And um, our ability to um, gather data from a number of different sensors and uh, integrate and display that has become particularly important. So in terms of competitors, um, there have been new single sensor companies which have appeared, but uh, Geotech's G uh, USP, which is the multi-sensor situation, is uh, relatively unchanged. What's the percentage split of sales through the different customer types, industrial, universities and other research facilities, etc.? Well, I'll answer this one with some difficulty because it's very speculative, but we we believe that uh, uh, universities are about half of our sales without having any evidence because, of course, it's always sometimes difficult to know where your sales are going. Uh, 
and and a good proportion goes also to test houses uh, and of course some of them are universities this is one of the sorts of our difficulties but i i would say you know if you talk universities and and research centers maybe 50 60 percent uh uh test houses maybe 20 30 percent and maybe industries probably again 20 30 percent but we don't have proper figures to justify this and just a final question tim what have been your insights and learning after six months at judges there's one thing in particular that, that I'd highlight, and it's come up in a few um, themes in, in, the, in the presentation so far, and that's um, the, the nature of, of, of judges, judges scientific, that's honourable, honest, open, what you see is what you get. Um, uh, it was sort of David's founding ethos for the, for the company, and you know, it's, it's still true to this day, every day, and it's not just talk, it, it really is reality. And I think a real learning point for me has been an experience for me has been the importance of that to, um, to not not just to the uh, the the, the, the um, headquarters team, but the culture of throughout the organisation, and also the importance of it to uh, prospective acquisitions as well. So uh, the, when when I have met prospective acquisitions and, and described that uh, you know, as an element of the group, it's it's always very very well received. It's it, it always seems to be one of the one of the key reasons why they are very keen to work with us. So I think the, you know, there's a, there's a real um, uh, close tie there with the, the, the way that judges operates and the, what what the potential sort of acquisition pool is looking for as well in the process that ties together really really well. So that's one of the key learning points for me. Tremendous. Thank you very much indeed. And that's the end of questions. David, do you have any closing remarks? No, no, I want to thank my colleagues and uh, uh, and the two of you also, and of course, everybody who attended uh, and, and bothered to uh, listen to us for a whole hour and asking many questions. And uh, And we hope to see many of you in six months for the final results. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.